You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, episode 28. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's episode features Karen Sin, the founder and CEO of Yegomoto, Rwanda's motorcycle taxi, ride-hailing startup. You can connect with him at Yegomoto Africa on Twitter. Karen is a successful entrepreneur who grew flourishing businesses in both India and Singapore. In 2015, he traveled to Rwanda on business and he saw an opportunity to use tech to organize the informal motorcycle taxi sector, which is prone to road accidents and associated with theft and crime. And the Rwandan government had even banned, albeit briefly, motorcycle taxes from Kigali around this time. But as the main means of transportation, they had to let them back onto the streets. So after some encouraging talks with the government, Karen set up Yegomoto, which mounts an IoT-enabled device with a point-of-sales terminal onto all of its bikes. And this helps the drivers who earn better wages and avoid deadly accidents, and also the passengers who no longer have to haggle the fares and are safer. And the exciting part of Yegomoto's business model is what Karen has described as its secret sauce. It's all of these reams of data that on the bikes that it's collecting. And this is data that's on the speed, location, fare costs. And all of this data can be spun into other businesses. Karen, who's quite the ambitious and forward-thinking entrepreneur, doesn't see Yegomoto as just a platform play, but rather an infrastructure play. He explains this in fascinating detail. We talked about Karen's long-term vision for Yegomoto, why it's different from other ride-hailing apps like Taxify and Uber, and the four questions he asks every aspiring entrepreneur. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Karen Sin. Karen, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Victoria. So you first came to Rwanda for the Transform Africa conference. Yes, that was in 2015. You've said before in an interview with CNBC that for you, the idea of transforming Africa is really about being more inclusive. What did you mean by that? Well, I find that a large number of companies or organizations come into Africa, but the way in which they architect a solution or they think about what the market needs is more looking at something that works outside and then trying to copy it or replicate it and then just bringing it into Africa without actually thinking about whether it would really make a difference and whether it would impact people's lives. Mm. So my way of looking at that is a little different in the sense that I think that before you bring in a solution, you need to actually do a lot of groundwork. You need to do a lot of research, spend a lot of time in getting to know the landscape, meeting and talking to a lot of people and to a lot of the different stakeholders and actually really digging deep into finding out what challenges people face. So when we have actually looked at, say, even the Yegomoto kind of solution, we didn't just look at urban Africa. We didn't just look at, you know, what we could do in larger organized cities. But we also went right into the hinterland, into the heart of Africa, which is, I think, still rural Africa, where you may not even have Internet connectivity or you may not have electricity or you may have other challenges. And then 
we thought about what are we going to do to impact their lives. I mean, what is it that they really need? So I think from a perspective of being more inclusive, I think it's basically to look at not just coming in with a idea to make money, but basically coming in and seeing how you can have impact, even if it's in the initial stages of small impact, but on a larger part of the population per se. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, tech is really the enabler. At the end of the day, it's about improving people's lives and solving problems. Yes, it is. And I want to backtrack a bit and talk about your background. You're Indian. You were born and raised in India. And later in life, you lived in Singapore for many years. Well, I was in Singapore from 2000 and I think it was 2010 to 2014. And then I moved back to India for a bit. I did visit different countries in Africa, and it just so happened that I got invited to the conference in Kigali. What was the backstory there? Well, it was just interesting that we'd come there in actually 2014, and we'd done a slightly different kind of project, which unfortunately I can't talk too much about. The background for the companies that I've been working on is Homeland Security. So we do Homeland Security solutions. So we've been providing those solutions in India, in Africa, actually in a very large number of countries around the world. And because of that, we travel and because of that, we get to meet different governments. So we already had, you could say, some kind of linkages back into Africa. And when we heard that there was a lot of activity in the first time I came to Africa, I was kind of surprised by, I thought that the poverty would be similar to India. And the fact that people would really be not very keen to pull themselves up and out of their poverty. But when I came to Africa, I found it to be a slightly different story. So when I got an invitation to come to Transform Africa, I said, why not? I said, you know, sounds like a nice place. And when I went to Transform Africa, I think for me, the big difference was compared to larger countries like India was just how easy and how open and how friendly the government people were, not just the Rwandan government, but that we had so many heads of state and they sat there on the dais and they spoke unabashedly about the challenges, about the problems, about their vision. And then one could get up and reach out and speak to these people. In India, that's very difficult. Mm. Yeah, no, it's I think when you have promising partners, or you have partners that you can easily engage with, particularly at the government level, like, obviously, that makes things so much easier. And I think if you want to make a change, you need the support. And you need, you know, help from not only the government, but from the other institutions that exist. And when you find them to be open. So the question that I'm asked very often is, why did you bother to come to Africa? Why didn't you stay in India? That's your home country. They also have challenges and needs. And I said, well, I'm a small fish. And I felt that I could make a difference in Africa. And I think in India, I would just get lost. Mm. And particularly in a country like Rwanda, which is very small, but so many companies go to Rwanda first because it's all about getting proof of concept. And again, there's such an enabling environment there. That's very true. Mm. So why did you choose to build an innovative solution for the informal motorcycle taxi industry? Like why motos? Well, if you look at Kigali as an example, Kigali has got about 700 buses, 900 taxi cabs, but 20,000 motorcycle taxis. So if you were to just consider what is the means of transportation that is actually used by the masses, it was motorcycle taxis. It would have been much easier for us to just turn around and say, okay, let's put infrastructure in buses or let's you know, look at putting something into the taxis. But we also asked the government and what had happened as a precursor is that in 2014, the police department actually tried to ban motorcycle taxis. And I think that ban was instituted maybe for a week or just a little bit longer. And that caused chaos on the streets for the drivers because they had no jobs for the passengers. And if you look at Africa per se, the median age on a continent of 1.2 billion people is 19. Now, what are these young people going to do to be able to find jobs? A lot of them who are even educated and who are now going through college, when they finish college, they get no jobs. Yeah, that's so true. So what we found is that 
this problem can be solved. And I think it was right time, right place, because the president in 2014, Paul Kagame, had stepped in and said, listen, you cannot ban young people from gaining employment. You have to find a technical solution. Well, what was the origins of the ban? It was because of safety and security. So the largest number of road accidents involve a motorcycle taxi. And then you have another big challenge there, which is that in these accidents, because of poor health care or not very well developed health care, I would say, a lot of the people who are involved in accidents, especially either riders or the drivers or the passengers, they get seriously injured. A lot of them die, but a lot of them get maimed for life. They lose a limb. So there was a big challenge there. And I was looking and I actually visited wards where I saw people now who were in the early 20s and who were now maimed for life. And you're snuffing out the future of a young, bright individual just from not having the safety and security in place. The other concern was that because this market was completely unregulated and there was no visibility onto the government in terms of who was driving the motorcycle taxi, at what speed was he driving, where was he going, not only was he driving recklessly because there was a lot of competition coming in and he had to compete for the rides, but also many of these people got involved in criminal activity so Rwanda is you know, the ninth safest country in the world as per the World Economic Forum. But even then, like we say in Singapore, low crime doesn't mean no crime. So there is crime. And this crime is actually planned and normally perpetuated using motorcycle taxis. Mm. So the government had a huge reason for trying to kind of stem this unprecedented explosive growth of motorcycle taxis and they didn't know how to solve it. So that's when we said that, okay, why don't we look at putting technology onto the motorcycle taxis? That would then provide the visibility, but we would also onboard all the drivers by registering them and verifying all of their documents, checking their background, making sure that he has insurance, driving license, he's trained, he knows how to drive, but also looking at the entire structure of the owners, whether they actually own the motorcycles, whether they're stolen, whether they're actually authorized to use them as a motorcycle taxi. So we said we'll create this entire database, which would be a unified database that the government could look at to basically create a regulatory environment, but to also create, I would say, some find of respect for the people involved in the industry. So a lot of these people are actually across Africa looked down on. They're essential for day-to-day -day transportation, but no one seems to like them. It's like the necessary evil because people said they're all criminals. You have to be aware of these guys. And when I went and met individuals and we had a team on the ground who interviewed more than a thousand drivers, I met many of them and I didn't see any criminal element there. So I said, no, they're just normal young people looking for an honest way to actually make a living. I think that's so true is that... You're right. It's not like anyone wants to be, you know, a taxi driver, like a motorcycle taxi driver. It's just that there's such the fundamental problem is that there's a lack of employment opportunities. So people need an opportunity to earn income and the barriers to entry are really low. And almost in any large African city, you're just going to see so many taxis around town because it's more about it's an employment opportunity. You're very right. And because of the fact that there is, really speaking, very little other avenues for employment that the young people kind of have no choice. So we said that, you know, that why don't we just look at it from a holistic perspective? And actually, there's a slightly different spin on it. I'm sorry to cut you off, but people don't understand. But one of the key things that the Yegomoto platform does is to actually build a credit score for all of these drivers. And the reason why we're building the credit score for all of these drivers is to prove to banks, financial institutions, microfinance, that look, these are honest, able-bodied men, and now we are onboarding women as well, who are working 10 to 12 hours a day, six to seven days a week, work regularly, are able to earn money, so why don't you give them a loan? What we're also doing, which is very important, which maybe people are not aware of, is that we go through this continuous education process. When they come on board, they come, they give us all their documents, but we also then call them back for training, and we are training them. Many of them have never seen 
a smart device or a touchscreen before. So we're training them, taking them through all the menus, making them understand how to use that device. And with that, we are actually bringing about a level of digital literacy that doesn't exist. The other thing that we do during this entire training process is, is that we're basically teaching them basic maths. So if you look at the taxi driver today, he is basically negotiating to do a trip. So if he was to do a trip, say, for eight kilometers, you could bargain him down to maybe six, seven hundred, eight hundred Rwandan francs. But if he did 16 kilometers, he you could still bargain him down and he would go for a thousand. Now, he thinks in absolute numbers. He doesn't think of cost of time or cost of fuel. Mm. So we are even training them mathematically, giving them some kind of, you can say, financial education. Then we are forcing them to open bank accounts, forcing them to open mobile money accounts. So as a result of which we are now telling him that he has the ability to be able to save. So if he can save and if he can access finance, what we actually want them to do is to try and get out of this motorcycle taxi industry, which is very unsafe. Is that a bit, I don't want to say dangerous, that's a strong word, but is that really sustainable for your business model if over the long term you're trying to encourage people to get out of the motorcycle taxi business? Well, it's certainly counterintuitive. There would always be more than enough drivers to be able to take the required number of rides with the passengers who exist in a town or in a rural area. Hmm. What do you think is really the ideal number of motorcycle taxis to satisfy the demand in Kigali? I would say that it would depend largely on how public infrastructure gets developed. Because if the number of buses increase and the frequency of buses increase, that would make sense. The challenge is it's a city with a small population of 1.2 million. So these buses are actually required in peak times. So it doesn't make sense then for a private company to put the required number of buses just to service peak time because that would not be a viable proposition. At the same time, a large part, so when you see Kigali, Kigali has probably some of the best roads that I've seen in Africa. It has a very low density of traffic. But the challenge is that when you move away from the center of Kigali to where people actually live, the roads are not paved. And many times the roads are not developed. So no vehicle can actually go there except for motorcycles. So there would always be a need for motorcycles until public infrastructure in terms of roads and buses or other modes of transport actually come in. In my own estimation today, I would assume that around 15,000 motorcycle taxis in Kigali today would be about the right number with the infrastructure that we have in place. Well, and I want to get back to this point that you mentioned about credit scoring of your drivers. Has it gotten to a point where banks are actually lending to your drivers using that credit history? Or are we still very early stages? We are still in early stage because we are still at a rollout phase. But all the banks and microfinance that have come to our office, and I would invite you to actually come to our office in Kigali and see what we are doing, because when you actually see it, live and you see what the platform is able to visualize and provide to you, then you will get an insight. So the we've had about seven heads of different banks in Kigali come there. And each and every one has said, we will partner with you. We will open accounts. We will give them finance. Because the big advantage in Rwanda is that since they have this policy of going cashless, we would basically be able to enable the same cashless infrastructure. In fact, all our meters today already enabled for that. So that means that the payments would basically flow through our platform. So if a person has taken a loan, we could deduct that loan on a daily or a weekly basis and pay the financial institution back. That would considerably reduce the cost of collection and as well as de-risk them from having given out that loan. Also because we have complete visibility from the perspective of his entire documentation from his national ID to his driving license. We have done that KYC bit, which also they would have access to. Insurance companies, interestingly, are also very interested in providing insurance to these people. And I think that would make a big difference to not only the drivers themselves, but also to the passengers who get involved in accidents where the driver doesn't have a third party insurance. And when they land up in a hospital, they can't get treated. So there are lots of ways in which that credit scoring that we would provide to the banks would be able to enable these people to access different kinds of finance from different institutions, but also to 
automatically pay back loans or insurance. And tomorrow we could obviously increase the number of organizations that participate on the platform to be able to fund many other things for them. It could be low-cost housing tomorrow. Right. What's so fascinating with your business model is that really the motorcycle taxi is just the tip of the iceberg. It's like you're creating this infrastructure on which you can build and offer many, many other services. So just to go back to the example of the payments that, I mean, I love that. I think that's fascinating that you could be acting as an intermediary to, you know, which is in the interest of the banks because it lowers the collection costs and it's also de-risking the payment of the loan. Yes. And actually, you know, I mean, I think you've been able to grasp it. So let me just share a little bit more. Imagine what we are actually doing. If you look at Rwanda, one of the largest banks there is called the Bank of Kigali. From the last figures I had, they had 1,500 point-of-sales terminals. So these are terminals where you can basically swipe a card, and most of it is payments by debit card kind of infrastructure. But there were 1,500 in the entire country, not in Kigali. Equity Bank, which is a Kenyan bank, has the largest number of agents all over Rwanda. Now, there are 1,400 agents in the entire country of Rwanda from Equity Bank, and they're the bank that has the largest number of agents. We believe that the market from the market size of these motorcycle taxi drivers is about 45,000. So now just imagine we have 45,000 mobile people with effectively a point of sales terminal connected to internet, ability to accept digital payments, now, why should he just be a motorcycle taxi driver? Actually, now he can be spun off as a guy who's been trained, who's literate, and now can do a lot of other things, such as imagine mobile money, I mean, mobile airtime top up. 99% of the mobile subscribers are prepaid. Now, if you could do airtime top up, and now you have 45,000 of these people running around the entire country who could do airtime pop up. Power is basically, if you have electricity, it's cash power. That means you have to pay in advance, and you get like a code, and you put it into the meter, and you get access to power. If you're off-grid and you've got solar, you've got to make payments to them. If there are government taxes, you have to pay them. If there's any other person who's trying to build any kind of a play in terms of accessing these people to be able to sell commodities, goods, services, whatever they need, again, to have some way to have the reach and to be able to access it. So we said, imagine what we are doing is where people say we're a platform play. I say, no, we are much more than that. We are actually an infrastructure play. So in a country where you're dealing with 1,500 point-of-sales terminals, we're putting out 45,000 point-of-sales terminals. Africa talks about poverty at one level, but they say, oh, we should basically provide everybody with smartphones, with cheap internet, but you have another problem, which is illiteracy. Now suddenly you've got 45,000 people who are seeded, who are all over, who know how to use a device. And you know how quickly if you give a child a device with a touch screen, a child can navigate the menus. It's very intuitive. Yeah. So now you have these devices going back and becoming, you can say, an education tool to prove to other people that having this device, even to a farmer tomorrow, is he would be able to access it. But imagine if there were 500 startups in Rwanda that wanted to provide last mile delivery for goods and services. Now you're providing them with, you can say, the infrastructure to be able to provide these goods and services at the same time to get motorcycle driver on demand without having to incur the capital cost of investing in a motorcycle or in a taxi driver and get access to a payment mechanism that's already in place. Right. Yeah. It's like you're taking the agent model or the agent network model, which is so deeply ingrained in sub-Saharan Africa, even like very fancy kind of state-of-the-art e-commerce businesses are always going to depend on agents to deliver those services. And so you're taking that and you're making it mobile. You're bringing it to your customer. That's true. And what we're saying is that this is not for us. It's a platform where we will publish third-party API that anybody can basically plug into the same infrastructure and avail of this entire network. So imagine the upliftment that would be there for the entire economy, not just for the motorcycle driver. He would earn more, but he would now become a facilitator and an agent. 
He could become an agent for any bank. It's just a question of us building the relationships at the back end and enabling the device that he already has. That's so ambitious. And no, I love that. So there's another part, I mean, just in a way of just looking at where this could go. Imagine there are 45,000 devices. These devices eventually, some people work at night, some people work during the day. These devices would normally end up, or a majority of these devices would end up going home. They are smart devices. They have memory, they have storage, they're connected to internet. What would preclude us for providing education to children, teaching them mathematics, teaching them basic language, teaching them skills through edutainment or from gamification, or for even teaching the spouse a new skill, or for passing on some government messages, or running small videos. Yeah, absolutely, because the infrastructure is there. Just to expand on this point of the data platform, which is being fed by all of these smart devices mounted on the motorcycle taxis, you've described this in the past as your secret sauce. And, you know, as you've detailed kind of really where this model could go. Yeah, you kind of understand why it's the secret sauce. But I'm interested to know in your relationship with the government, are you selling this anonymized data to them? No. So basically, we're not providing, we're not selling the data to the government. We are basically providing the data to the government. And the data is basically available to different segments of the government or different stakeholders through different portals. So they get to access and to see different parts of the platform. And in terms of governance, it obviously provides a lot. But there are also a lot of other things which come in from like a city planning perspective from the same data because you've got, so imagine you've got traffic flow, density, mm. speed of traffic. So if somebody wants to put in a new bus route, you've got origin destination data. So there's a huge amount of big data which is in there. There's also data that can be anonymized and can have a huge amount of value by then providing things like couponing systems on the same platform. So if you want to incentivize someone to come and buy bread or to buy a drink or to have a snack or to have a meal, you could then, because we know where people are, we know where people go, we kind of have access to big data, not in a big brother kind of way, but in a way of being able to then facilitate more commerce and outreach to them to be able to give them benefits. Well, and I was going to say that this type of data is just a treasure trove for urban planners. Yes, it is. Yeah. So have there kind of, are there any projects in the work to kind of use this data to do something like smart traffic management systems or just to build kind of more efficient cities that can really cope with kind of growing populations? Because that's also a huge concern in sub-Saharan Africa. Well, I think a lot of these things have been thought about. They haven't been implemented yet. Many of these are still at a nascent stage because we need to be able to have all of these devices out in the market. We need to have a very large amount of data coming in before it begins to become meaningful. So right. once that happens, I think... What would be that threshold of like when you get enough, like when the sample is big enough that you can actually draw meaningful conclusions from it and start to execute something? I would feel that we need to cross at least 30% of the total number of bikes to be able to get meaningful data. But we are hoping that we would be able to get nearly 100% of the market because what has happened is because we actually created something very different from Uber or Taxify in the sense that they are a ride-sharing app. They are basically a ride-hailing app. It's for you to be able to call someone. The precursor for that is that you need to have, as a passenger, the smartphone. You need to be able to download the app. You need to have internet connectivity. You should know how to turn on GPS. You should know how to actually read a map to be able to call a vehicle. Now, there are a couple of challenges there. The first is that if you were to look at that model, people who can afford mobile phones or smartphones and pay for internet data in sub-Saharan Africa would normally be people who own their own cars or would be people who go around on taxis. We see that over 85% of our passengers have a normal feature phone. So that kind of precludes them from downloading an app and utilizing an app. So we said, why don't we take all the intelligence and put it on the metering device, which is basically there on the each motorcycle. So then the question came up is that, 
what if a passenger wants to be able to call a moto? So now in Kigali, and I would say that would be true of Kampala or Nairobi, in most of these places, you walk onto the road day and night and you will have either motorcycle standing there or it will pass by, you know, under a minute. But imagine that, okay, you're not even doing street hailing, which is what we are very good for, but you want to call someone. We said it's very simple. You have a device in your hand. As long as it's charged, you don't even have to have airtime credit on it. You call a toll-free number 9191 and you basically speak to an agent who speaks to you in your language and then assesses where you are and then gets a driver to come to where you are. And so you don't have a smartphone. You don't have internet data. You get an SMS with the plate number of a motorcycle that would be a taxi that would come to you within a given period of time and normally it would be within a minute or maybe five minutes at the maximum if it's four o'clock in the morning and now you have been able to access and get the ride hailing done without having a smartphone without having internet right that's a very african solution <laughs> because like you said it's most people have feature phones so you have to do something either with sms or ussd correct so now coming back to a little bit about the infrastructure of the platform play now, imagine that we have the call center in place. Imagine that these drivers are equipped and they're all over even a city like Kigali. Now, in every city, you have a lot of professional handymen there, right? Now, when the handymen are there, the handymen basically are sitting normally by the side of the road. He has a normal feature phone. How does he access his customer? So there could be a plumber sitting in one part of Kigali. How does he access his customer? Either the customer has a problem, already has his number saved and calls him. There is no website. There is no app for him to be able to put up his credentials. So the customer also doesn't have a smartphone, doesn't have internet, but wants a plumber. Now they just simply call the call center and they say, we want a plumber. So the agent says, I have at this point in time, there are seven plumbers who are available near you. What do you want fixed? I want to get a wash basin installed. I have four plumbers who are capable of doing this. This is the minimum that they would charge to come to you. So the person says, yes, I would like to get a plumber. We would have a selection criteria. Eventually, people would basically rank them based on how good they are at their jobs. And then we would facilitate a motorcycle driver to go pick up the plumber, bring the plumber to you with a guarantee to the plumber that his minimum charge for visiting is taken care of and that his to and fro has been prepaid by the customer. All transaction done by mobile money or by any other kind of digital transaction, which could be even linked to a bank. So you facilitate now additional rights for the motorcycle, but you facilitate now additional business for all these handymen who are sitting around waiting for jobs. And you also can extend this now to all the small SMEs. So you could be a bakery. So if I today wanted to get a birthday cake, I would normally go to my closest vicinity and then try and look for something there. But if I could facilitate this now, anybody could buy anything from anywhere. If I needed to travel and I needed a suit dry clean, Today, there is virtually no way for me to be able to access it. I need to find a place. I need to be able to go somewhere. I need to be able to deliver. I find out if a place is open, negotiate with them, tell them, can I get my suit back at four hours? But what if I could call up a call center, have my suit picked up, delivered, picked up in four hours and brought back to my office all without leaving my office? Oh, so I would love that. <laughs> I, <laughs> As someone who works at home, I just do not like having to go out. I just do not like wasting time doing errands because here they take so long because of the traffic. Absolutely right. So basically, we would save you your four trips because you would make a trip to go out, come back and then go out again after four hours and come back. So we would save you your four trips, but we would facilitate the motor driver for getting two additional trips and for that dry cleaning shop for getting additional business. So when are you looking to roll out kind of the services component? So we have already got the call center up and running now. We are going to ensure that what we have planned in terms of being able to facilitate the drivers to be able to carry out the transactions works. So we will be rolling it out, I would say by January, we, we would start a rollout, but it would again be a slow rollout with selected services. 
just to be able to see the uptake and to do fine tuning to ensure that there are no hiccups when we actually roll it out en masse. Mm. Because what is your threshold for doing market research? For example, when you're thinking about introducing this new kind of services component, how long does it take for you to feel comfortable like, okay, yes, we can go ahead and execute? Well, the hard part is the data collection in the beginning. Is in the data collection and is then working out all the SOPs that we would need to put in place to make this entire thing seamless and secure. Because the last thing we want is to be able to take a suit and the guy disappears with your suit or he gives it to the wrong place or he drops it or he doesn't bring it back in time or the person he takes it to ruins it. So we basically need to look at a lot of other things which are beyond our immediate control and to see how we can ring fence all of these services, bring them on board, continuously monitor them because we would have to train and educate these people as well. They have to all be brought onto the platform. So the actual initial stages of creating, I would say, the knowledge base for us to do the programming would take about six months to be able to roll out generically any kind of service. But once that's done, then the programming part is not the difficult part. That can be done quite easily. Then we're still going back with idealistic models and saying, this is what we thought. This is how it would work. These are all the checkpoints that we would have. Then we need to actually go and see on the ground, does it really work that way? Mm, okay. No, it's always nice to kind of get insight into someone's thought process because there are a lot of entrepreneurs that while they will do market research, they almost kind of go with their gut in a way. <laughs> so it's very much depends on the individual. I think a lot of people want, they have a great idea and they think that because they think it's a great idea, it's going to fly. But I always believe that you should always go out and test the model. There are very simple parts of business for any entrepreneur who wants to be able to come into starting any kind of business. And I always challenge them. I have a lot of people coming to me, young kids with good ideas, some asking for investment, some asking for advice. And I always challenge them with the same four or five questions. I said, first one is, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Okay, Are people willing to pay for it? If it's so great, why hasn't somebody else already done it, right? Mm. And is this solution that you're going to build something that can scale? I mean, is there a demand? You might come up with some solution, but only five people want it every month. Now, that's a boutique kind right. of business, right? You might say, I'm going to paint portraits, right? But how many people would paint, want you to paint an oil portrait that costs $500 in Africa? So you might come up with a model. The question is, you need to be able to test that model from very simple, basic business sense. And what I find unfortunate is that this basic business sense is lacking. People are in a hurry to get funded. And the amount of funding which is normally available in Africa is from the $5,000 to $25,000 range. A lot of people throw money at it, but they don't really handhold these young people and give, teach them basic business. I mean, there is a cost of doing business. In the end, you have to make that money back. How are you going to make that money back? How are you going to scale? You are one person sitting in one room, you'll take on another person and you believe it's going to happen. Tomorrow when this becomes a company and you have 150 people working and you have to pay salaries and rent and electricity mm -hmm. and their mobile network, I mean, their mobile bills or whatever, how do you plan that out, right? So you have to basically think about all of these things at the same time. You're looking to expand into other East African markets, Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania. And you've said that, of course, each one is different and will require you to tweak your business model, which you've developed for Rwanda, which is, I think, categorically the easiest market and the smallest in the region. So where are you in your regional expansion plans? Well, we are in discussions with partners and with governments in many countries in Africa. And what we are finding is that every country rightly has their own requirements, their own challenges. And we need to be able to titrate our business model to be able to suit them. So what we would like to do is to basically complete the rollout in Rwanda, learn as many lessons as we can here, but then take the solution in a similar form, not in an identical form, but in a similar form into the other countries. And what is interesting is that we haven't gone out actively seeking other countries, but we've been approached by very 
high levels of government, where they are the ones who can see already what benefits they would get just from having some amount of organization brought into the motorcycle taxi industry. So we're feeling that, you know, rather than just go out today and spread ourselves thin, that we would want to consolidate what we are doing in Rwanda and then take a solution that is tested to be able to take it then. And if we need to iterate a little bit or pivot in the business model, we feel that every country would need to be addressed in a slightly different way. But we feel that the market opportunity across sub-Saharan Africa is really huge. Oh, absolutely. Because like you said, so many people depend on these informal means of transportation to get to work and home. And like what's fascinating in Abidjan is that for someone who's on minimum wage, probably their greatest expense is going to be transportation, even more than their rent. It's astounding. But very often, it's probably one of the biggest costs on a monthly basis for, for the average person. Yeah, so I can imagine that. And the sad part is, if they can't afford a motorcycle ride, their ability to be able to get to work becomes a challenge. They normally spend an hour and a half to two hours each way, which basically impacts quality of life as well. Right, absolutely. So if you were to look at a small organization that wanted, as a perk, to be able to provide this ride, to office and back. How would they be able to do it? Because it would become a nightmare logistically from a perspective of people having to pay, right? Like every day I would come, I would say, no, I negotiated with this guy. Today he charged me 800. Tomorrow he charges me 900. It was raining. He charged me 1200. Okay. But imagine if you had standardized fares, if you had metered service, if you had the company that could have a corporate account, get billed automatically, but also receive a huge upside in it in the sense that governments would then turn around and say that since this is not cash business and we get visibility into it, we would now allow you to expense it. And the organization gets away with having to deal with all the paperwork and reimbursement of expenses and all of that. But they also get something else, which is fantastic, which especially for NGOs and other organizations, the net need to send people into the field is now they have visibility that did this person actually go from point A to point B? Did he leave and come back? Did he just go downstairs to a coffee shop and come back after three hours and present me with a paper bill? You know. Yeah, no, I mean, the opportunity is kind of immense of how you can sell the many services that are kind of based off of this platform. I mean, we are still discovering new ways and a lot of people come to us and say, can you do this? And then when we show them that it's already there and ready, then they get kind of astounded and said, why haven't you launched it? Well, we said, you know, a step at a time because we need to educate our drivers. We need to get the drivers on board. I mean, they are actually our customers. Everybody else is our customer's customer. Yes, that's a critical way of looking at it. Yes. Well, and I want to pivot a bit and I want to get your thoughts on Africa's fintech sector because you mentioned a, what I found to be a very compelling idea during this interview with CNBC. And you talked about how a continental financial switch could allow banks to process settlements and payments and how that would revolutionize Africa's financial services industry. And you cited what India is doing in this regard. Could you expand on that? Sure. So when I look at all the credit cards and I look at all the debit cards which are issued in Africa, I'm kind of surprised because you see either Visa or MasterCard. Now, imagine that for being able to do a transaction which is happening within a country and it's not going outside the confines of that country, you are normally using a switch. And I think a large number of switches are either in Kenya or in Egypt, at least for the part of the world that I'm living in today. And when I look at this and I look at the cost, and that cost has to be borne by the bank in hard currency, and I'm saying, but why? I mean, this is money now being spent within the confines of a country. It doesn't really, the transaction doesn't really need to leave the country for it to be settled. So when we looked at India and what India did was when the demonetization happened and 86% of our currency was taken off the market, we were forced to basically come up with all kinds of solutions. But we have something called like a unified payment interface, UPI, which then was rolled out and was then made available to every startup and to every bank to be able to provide payment ability to be able to send and receive payments. You could do it even via SMS. 
So it's the same thing that WhatsApp has tapped into right now. And the cost of doing these transactions, the transaction cost is zero. So imagine now Africa, imagine mobile money, imagine the cost of sending money, imagine the cost of cashing out because now cashing in gets loaded on cashing out. Imagine that entire cost. If you were to take that cost of money and it also impacts the velocity of money and then create a switch. Now you could have countrywide switches that interconnect because actually the amount of cross-border trade today is not really that significant and that can still be managed through banking infrastructure that exists. But for day-to-day transactions within a country, and that I think is the success of M-Pesa, to have something which is friction-free or at least low friction and to have it at a very low cost is something which technically it's already been solved. It just needs to be adopted by the different countries in Africa. Mm, I love that. That's great food for thought. And now I want to focus on your entrepreneurial journey and kind of more on you as kind of an individual. And I'd love to know what has been the biggest failure in your career as an entrepreneur and what did you learn from it? Oh, I've had many failures. I think that would be a very long conversation. (laughs) Uh, What's one that stands out? Well, I think the first failure was my first venture. And for most of us, I think, at least in India, normally when you go and start your first business venture, you reach out to friends and family. I reached out to my mother and I calculated how much money I would need to be able to start a business. I knew exactly what I was going to make. I knew what it would cost. And I thought I'd got everything down. So I went and I borrowed at that point in time, I think 15,000 rupees. And lo and behold, a month elapses and the 15,000 rupees is gone. I don't have a product and I certainly don't have a sale. So I go back to my mother, who was a benevolent kind of bank, right? (laughs) And got more money from her. And this time I doubled what I estimated and I was wrong again. Three months later, I was out of money again. But during that entire journey of going and getting money and in kind of being able to budget what I needed and then trying to estimate how difficult it would be to make the first sale. And the fact that today, I would say the curse of business planning is probably the Excel spreadsheet where you can put in numbers and suddenly see you're going to become a millionaire while you haven't moved away from your desk yet. (laughs) So that I think was the hardest lesson for me to learn is to basically understand that there are a lot of things that you don't ponder, that you don't see, that are the invisible elements that basically come up. So regardless of how much planning you do, you have to actually plan for them. If you think you're going to do something in three months, it's probably going to take four times that. If you think you're going to use a certain amount of money, it's probably going to take five times or 10 times the amount of money that you estimated. And then making the sale or getting the business is actually a lot harder and a lot more difficult than what you imagine. Just because you think it's a good idea, you need to go out and test it. Right. And you have to be able to persuasive, you know, to convince someone of it as well. And I think one of the biggest attributes that I've been probably fortunate with is to have the persistence because you must fail because if you don't fail, you don't learn. And if you don't fail often enough, you're not trying hard enough. You're not pivoting. You're not challenging yourself. You're not going to grow. You're not going to ideate. You're not going to come up with something new. So you must be ready for failure. You must embrace failure because learning comes from failure. But you have to have then that ability to be persistent, to be able to go after it and say, no, I'm going to get it right. I'm going to do it. I'm going to fix it. So that ability to be able to put in planning and to realize that not everything will go as per plan, but to then persevere and to carry on is when you begin to see success. And I think that's probably been my first initiative. I think it was in 1986. And that was the first time that I went in and started doing this. I started on my entrepreneurial journey. If you could go anywhere else in Sub-Saharan Africa on a one-year sabbatical to learn and improve your business, where would you go and why? That's a very interesting question. I look at it and I look at it and like you very rightly said that the Rwandan market is small, it's very organized, you have you know all the big advantages and benefits of a small country. But to actually dig in deep and to be able to take on the world, so as to speak, 
I think probably it would be for me either Uganda or Kenya. It's a toss up there because both of these I think would be very challenging markets. They have strong players already there who have brought in the traditional ride hailing model and to be able to go and operate and to be able to go and provide value and to be able to get the required uptake I think would bring a lot of lessons and I'm really looking forward to that. So it wouldn't be a sabbatical. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a part of your regional expansion plans. Absolutely. Mm. And if you had a billion dollars to invest in sub-Saharan Africa, what sector would you invest in and why? I would invest without thinking in education and in primary healthcare. Mm. And that would be motivated by returns or rather kind of impact? Impact. Mm. Returns actually always come. I mean, my philosophy is if you do good things and don't worry about the outcome, the universe looks after you. Mm, no, that resonates with me. Yeah. So for me, the challenge today is that when I go out, and this sometimes brings tears to my eyes because when I look at some places that I've been to and people come up running and say, boss, boss, I say, yes, it's a boss, give me a job, give me work. They don't come to me begging. They don't come and ask for money. They don't come and ask for... These are young people who have skilled themselves at least to the ability to be able to speak a language. They are now standing by the side of the road, hungry, thirsty, unwashed, but they're not begging. They're just asking for someone to help them. So when we are talking about education today, one of the key concerns that I have is, are we really educating people the right way? Are we educating them into them getting the, in terms of getting it right, in terms of what does Africa today need? I think one of the challenges, and this came up in one of the other conferences, is that I said that maybe we're doing everything wrong. Because if you look at Africa, what is the challenge that Africa has today? Africa's challenge today is food. Tomorrow it will be water, or if it's not there already. But if you're going to teach people to come into cities, to come and say, you know, get into the tech space, develop an app, and you'll become rich. I think we're teaching kids all the wrong things. We need to be able to understand that you need to be able to go back to the land from where food comes, to grow the food, to be able to go back and look at rural Africa, because that's the most critical part. The cities wouldn't exist if rural Africa doesn't exist. But the focus somehow has been taken away from rural Africa. And the tech space seems to be more interested in just urbanizing Africa. And if everyone gets urbanized, who's going to grow the food? And I yeah. really feel when you go into rural Africa, there's still a huge divide. And the huge divide for me is in terms of education, basic education, but the right education, which I don't think exists today, and also is in basic healthcare. I see these people struggling with no amenities. Well, and to go back to what you've just said, what is the right education? So I think that needs to be looked at because on one hand, just look at AI, just look at machine learning, just look at the fact that almost every job that can be done and it's repetitive in nature can be done far more efficiently by a machine, right? So what is it that you are going to then do? I mean, if you look at educating people, putting them to college, and you look at, say, a bank person working in the bank who was counting money and handing them out, still has a job in Africa. But you could get replaced by an ATM, but then you could get replaced by a seamless way of payments, which doesn't require you to sit there and to count money because money is no longer there. So what kind of jobs then do you really need to be able to create in Africa? So for those jobs, what kind of education would you need to create? And for me, it basically goes back to the basics of being able to put food on the table. It goes back to the basics of people understanding how to protect the environment. Other countries where we have gone and destroyed the environment, we have gone and destroyed the soil by contaminating it with fertilizers, which have destroyed the biomes. So you then get disease in the plants and then you put pesticide and then you get cancer. So you've got monocropping from all these countries in Africa that have got such a diverse variety of foods. You come to monocropping, you're going to get all the diseases from the first world. You will get diabetes, mm, cardiovascular right. disease, cancer, you don't have the wherewithal to be able to fight that off. So why do you want to start on that journey? So we need to basically get people to study environmental awareness. 
we need people to be able to study agriculture or conservation or you know not contaminating our water so those are the areas which need to be focused on those are the areas that need to be sexified because today the kids believe that no i'm going to go learn computing and i'm going to you know make an app and i'm going to become a millionaire really is that going to put food on your table mm. so we need to go back to basics and i think a lot of the governments in africa simply aren't thinking they're not thinking of what they have what is shocking is many countries today don't realize that today if you were to look at europe or america the price of organic food is normally twice that of commercially farm grown food right yeah. right what does africa have today africa has organic food by nature but what are the governments doing they're hiding behind this facade of what they call food security and they're bringing in fertilizer and they're ruining their lands but nobody's thinking about it nobody talks about it nobody asks questions no one talks about an even bigger problem that's there in africa which is the population right yeah if you're going to go from 1.2 billion to 1.6 billion in what in the next 42 years according to world bank who's going to feed them where's the food going to come from where's the water going to come from so i think there are fundamental questions that need to be asked so i basically challenge the education that we are teaching i mean i challenge that education around the world in terms of where are we going what are we doing oh right i mean that's a conversation that's being had everywhere it's about really questioning kind of the use and just the applicability of kind of the traditional education system. Yes. So I think there's a lot that can be done and I think a lot of this can be done by serious reflection and debate within governments themselves in trying to understand what is it that they already have and how they can protect it and how they can best use it. and i think i mean there was a for me there was a simple example like if you looked at the avocado industry and what was supplied in north america i think mexico and if i'm not mistaken is peru that produces 60 70% of the avocados but due to flooding last year that crop was wiped out so there was obviously no supplies going into the us the price went up but i would like to ask how many african nations were able to take advantage of that and export what i would call very high quality organic avocados mm-hmm. to america yeah so many african markets well agricultural markets are just highly fragmented and disconnected from global markets so i think there are a lot of things that already exist a lot of things that again platforms like us can come in and look at them and saying that you know how do we bring back fair value why will people go back to rural africa why will people invest in agriculture certainly they would do it if their returns were higher but to be able to get their returns to be higher then we would have to ensure that they get a fair share of the retail price now if you cut out all the middlemen then certainly today the technology exists so the technology today if it is utilized for giving fair value back to the person who's actually producing the goods or services the propensity then for that industry to be able to grow up or to more people to be able to focus on it would exist right absolutely yes so from my perspective yes if i had a billion dollars i would go live somewhere in rural africa and certainly try and make a dent there hmm and if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring entrepreneur in sub-saharan africa what would it be go and fix the big problems don't worry about the small problems there are enough people thinking about how to make a quick buck but there are endemic very large problems that need to be fixed these are very large scalable opportunities and they revolve around the basic fundamentals that you need in life if i was to tell you to hold your breath for how long could you hold your breath if i was to tell you not to drink water for how long could you not drink water and survive if i told you not to eat or the fact that you couldn't get access to food how long would you be able to survive right so there are things which in the environment which we take for granted which actually are deteriorating at a very rapid pace so if you can fix the air i mean by preventing pollution by looking at a lot of the green projects and the way that industry is working in terms of looking at creating or generating power or just being able to recycle water or to not contaminate it in the first place 
to be able to grow food. And there are some people who I was quite surprised are even growing food in uh, containers. So there are a huge number of scalable problems that need to be solved. And I would urge people to actually look at that rather than saying, I'm going to make an app. Mm. Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such an enlightening, kind of illuminating conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Victoria. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcasts. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, Young African Entrepreneur.